Warning! This episode of The Secret Cinema contains discussions of disturbing and adult content. So, heads up! This is the end. Here. A drink. To our lives together. The beginning and the end. You should fuck yourself. Oh, my dear boy, don't you see? We are fucking each other. You are now entering the secret cinema. Secret Cinema, the film podcast with a dangerous thirst for knowledge. I'm Paolo Carone, my co-host is Carrie Chafee, and today we're joined by Courtney Mandarino to discuss Brian Singer's 1998 horror drama, Apt Pupil. I don't have any notes, so here's Carrie with the plot summary. When high school student and all-star athlete Todd Bowden discovers one of his neighbors is a former Nazi in hiding, he decides to blackmail him. Todd coerces the Nazi, Kurt Dusander, into retelling his experiences during World War II. But as Todd's relationship with Dusander grows closer, Dusander finds his opportunity to blackmail Todd. Will Todd learn from his mistakes, or will he fail the ultimate test of human decency? During our discussion, we sum up Apt Pupil as a film divided between two modes, disturbing and kind of boring. We elaborate quite a bit on this in the discussion, but I just wanted to give a quick example of each before we jump in. Our first clip, from about 16 minutes into the film, features Dusander, played by Ian McKellen, providing Todd, played by Brad Renfro, with disturbing details from the concentration camp gas chambers. I hope that's enough of a hint about which of the two modes this clip represents. Here's that clip. Did anyone ever survive it? One time, the gas didn't work. There was a leak in the pipes, so oxygen mixed with the monoxide. It was horrible. But after an hour, they were still moving, stumbling around the room like drunks, their eyes glassy. What did you do? I altered more gas, but we didn't know about the leak. Soon they began to twitch all over, like they were dancing. Some even fell to their knees, laughing this terrible, high-pitched squeal. Even the guards were frightened. It didn't kill them. 
After two hours, I sent five men in with rifles. It's getting dark. Your mother will be worried. Oh, shit, I gotta go. I can be here tomorrow by 315. I wanna hear the end of this. The end? Our second and final clip, which represents the kind of boring sections of the film, we hear Dusander pretending to be Todd's grandfather in a meeting with Todd and his high school guidance counselor Edward French, played by David Schwimmer. This scene is very important to the plot, and the clip runs a little long to include several key details, but you should be able to notice that it lacks the intensity and immediacy of the previous clip. So here's that clip, and we'll see you on the other side for a discussion of Apt Pupil. Todd, I've been looking at your record, and according to your progress report, this quarter, every grade is way down. Even your strongest subjects. History. You went from a solid A to a C minus. Trigonometry, down to a D. Todd, did you know you were on your way to finishing first in your class? Yes. Well, your grandfather and I have been talking, and we both agree that with what's been going on, what with your father's work problems and your mom with the drinking, that maybe home isn't the best place to be studying. So he's offered to let you study over at his place every day after school. Todd, I think it's a good idea. You do? Yeah. In fact, I offered to go a step further. But it means you and I got to make a deal. What kind of deal? Well, finals for this quarter are in three and a half weeks, right? Now, if you can give me all A's, then I'll talk to your teachers and see if we can't discount your midterms and let this quarter's grades rest with your final exams. If you, if you come back with B's or C's, I can't help you. But all A's, that shows everybody that you're serious. You can do that? Yeah. But first, you gotta start being honest with me. No more forging your father's signature. No more hiding my letters. Now, for now, we can deal with just the three of us if it makes things easier at home, but you try and pull one over on me, and next time I show up on your doorstep, is that clear? He's offering the help. I know, but that's a whole lot to do in three weeks. What if I can't do it? Mr. Bowden, I can't thank you enough for coming down here today. Um, but if it's all right with you, I'd like to talk to Todd alone for a few minutes. Yes, it's quite all right. If you didn't excuse me, I'm afraid that my desire for a cigarette would. <laughs> <laughs> Take my word. When the time is right, I'll, I'll tell Richard about all this. You know, he and Monica need to know what's happening to mm. this time. Mm. I expect you have to school. Very persuasive man. Tell me about it. 
Listen, Todd, I understand what you're going through. I really do. My wife and I, we just went through the nastiest divorce since Henry VIII's. And I know it's not easy being a senior and only 16. And now we're asking a lot of you. But your grandfather thinks you can do this. Todd, I know you can. So from now on, I don't want you to feel like you have no one you can talk to. Okay? Your parents or girl problems, anything at all. Here's my home phone. Anything at all. Anything. You call me, Todd. Call me. Deal? I'm telling you, buddy, you get past this little hurdle, I promise you the world's gonna open up for you like like you won't believe. A brand new guest this week. Guest, can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Courtney Mandarino. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Courtney's here. <laughs> Courtney, Woo! we met through uh, Ricardo's Monster Movie Mondays, uh, a, a staple of our film diet. And it's how we've consumed so many bad horror movies. Yeah, and Courtney, but good horror movies. Courtney, too. you've gone to a music box of horrors with us and stuff, so you you're right on board with the type of thing we watch. And this week. You picked Apt Pupil for us <laughs> Yes, to watch. I did. Thank uh, you so much. <laughs> do, do you want to tell us why you picked Apt Pupil? Um, partially because I hadn't seen it since it came out. Partially because I had read the book, which I actually reread before which is doing amazing. this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Deep on the research on Dedication. that Dedication. So. Yeah, uh, what do you think of the movie? Now that you've rewatched it, what is your... What do you feel about it? <laughs> um, it's fine. It's, I, it, I don't, what a I see why I didn't, I didn't remember it very well. I, there's a lot, it, it's one that I feel it's kind of forgettable yeah. in a lot of ways. You remember the basic plot, but a lot of the details kind of fade away. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> this is the third time I've seen it now. And yeah, the third time. <laughs> it's the third time. <laughs> and I remember as a kid seeing the poster for this and being terrified just because I didn't understand. I was just like a, a scary man coming out of the shadows, grabbing a teenage boy, and I was like, Ugh. but like, yeah, that would be scary for you. <laughs> but watching it, yeah, watching it now, it's like weird. You're right; it is weirdly forgettable because it's boring alternated with moments of extremely tactless content. <laughs> so it like makes the boring stuff so much more boring when you are like focusing on scenes that we will definitely get into in a little bit. So I'm not gonna jump ahead, but Kiri, what do you think? Oh, I do not like this movie. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't think I would have watched this movie if uh, it wasn't on our secret cinema list. Yeah. And, I, and that's saying a lot because I like Stephen King a lot. I've seen almost every Stephen King movie. Well, you like, you like Brian Singer too because you like the X-Men movies. Yeah, yeah. And I, I also have, I've read a lot of Stephen King books and I haven't read this novella, mm -hmm. but I, um, I, yeah, I'm a big Stephen King fan and this just had, I mean, for me, there's like no appeal for this movie for me to watch it. Yeah. Other okay. than like. Oh, it's a Stephen King movie, or oh, it's got uh, Ian McKellen in it. This or, is this is something we talked about last time we watched it. Uh, well, the first time you saw it, and this I read Roger Ebert's review when we were looking at this. It comes up in his, which is what exactly are you supposed to take away from this movie? 
Like, obviously, if you think of it in terms of it's, it comes from a novel, I can see the novelistic qualities to it and, like, the sort of parallels it's trying to set up. But as a movie, the lesson it kind of leaves you with is that it's a bleak, dark world full of evil people who will try to get <laughs> leverage over you as soon as they can. Like, it really doesn't end or up... Or no a, justice? Yeah. Maybe that's the... Yeah, like, in the message? end... Well, okay, let's, let's, let's set this up a little bit. Um, yeah, I actually, I think we should start, because Courtney's familiar with it, with the book. Did you read the whole book or just this section of the book? Because I know it's a four-parter. I read just this section this time. I had read the others. It's actually kind of great. There's four novellas. It's uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, Apt Pupil, and The Body, which became the movie Stand By Me. And then one that I remember being pretty shitty called The Breathing Method. <laughs> it has not turned into a movie. So... They can't all be good. I just read out people this time. Okay. Yeah, yeah. This movie, that book spawned three movies. Yeah. And I would say two of the three movies are really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the third one. But the book, like, I wonder, because for me, this movie, I don't understand why anyone would really want to see this movie. That's the thing. Like, why would you want to see a teenage boy being mentored by a Nazi, and then the Nazi dies at the end. I mean, the, okay. Anyway, skipping ahead to the movie. But so, the book, I'm just curious, like, does Stephen King, does he get more into, like, the internal battle of the boy, or? Yes. There's quite a few differences. Like, the kernel stays the same. Um, the novella's about 200 pages, which seemed long even as I was reading it. <laughs> it gets deep into the backstory of, like, the guy who rats um, Ian McKellen out in the end. Yeah. And oh. the backstory of the guidance counselor. Oh. And um, the, the story also spans about four years in the book. Oh, oh, wow. So, because one of the creepier things is that the boy starts blackmailing the Nazi when he is 13. Which, making him that much younger <laughs> is creepy because in the movie he's a senior in high school. And it gets way more into the fact that the boy is actually... A psychopath like he feels like he's manipulating everyone all the time he thinks about how he can lie to people how he can trick people into believing into what he wants like textbook psychopath thinks things don't apply okay. to him all this so it, it gets much deeper into that and it there's a lot more violence in it there's a lot more cat killing there's a lot more <laughs> hobo killing um the end is you quite said, a bit different you said hobo killing right hobo yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i was like wait hold oh, on yeah. in we'll the book they that. mostly call them winos or stew bums <laughs> for the record <laughs> also that sounds very like main you got a stew bum going when todd the boy first starts um talking to arthur denker the nazi um, there's a great line in the book, because the book also takes place in the mid-70s, not the mid-80s. Okay. And this kind of is reflective of that. The one line I wrote down from the book is when he first, um, introduces himself and tells him that he's going to start blackmailing him to hear about all the concentration camp stuff, he says, I really groove on all that concentration camp stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah, wow. You'd never hear the word groove and concentration camp in the same sentence. Nope. No. <laughs> Well, so the, it sounds like at least the book presents Brad Renfro's character from the movie, Todd, as a bad guy. But in the movie, I didn't get the sense right away that Todd is a bad guy. Right. 
And you don't, I mean, he's very much in the book, like, the all-American kid, which they do kind of play up in the movie yeah. as well. Yeah, sure. He's, he's a valedictorian, yeah. He, yeah, all those things are still present in the book, but he f starts learning about concentration camps from actually a friend's dad has, like, some magazines or books on it, and he starts reading up on it and finds out that he has a Nazi living right down the street, and <laughs> yeah. he wants to hear all about it. How convenient, right? <laughs> So that setup is essentially the same. He starts blackmailing him in order to hear the grisly details mm. about what actually went on. I will say I was impressed with how the movie very, very quickly sets the audience up to accept that Brad Renfro is, like, obsessed with learning about the Holocaust. Because, like, yeah. the first scene is he's in school. He's in a so I think it's a sociology class. Mm -hmm. And they, they have the big pie chart on the chalkboard that's, like, the different groups that were killed by the Nazis during the Holocaust. And... The what a weird way to show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A pie chart? I don't well, know. Well, and then the, the teacher is saying, like, the movie starts and the teacher is, like, concluding... Uh, his like lesson and he's saying like was it economic factors what was it this or was it simply a matter of human nature like specifically trying to draw this idea of like is that what caused the holocaust and is it is there an actual reason for it or is it just that people do bad things mm. like the thesis statement if if we are going to accept that that is a thesis statement that this that people are bad <laughs> and people do bad things for no clear reason um then that yeah that's set up right away and then he immediately well the teacher says like if you want to learn more about the holocaust you visit your local library basically not in those words <laughs> nice but, the library. yeah and uh and, that's the only reason to visit the library <laughs> and so and so brad renfro uh whose name is todd uh he goes to the library and then we have that the opening credits which one of you described as, uh, because they're just like the opening credits for one of the X-Men movies. But like a, any superhero movie where they're like, ooh, the origin story of the yeah. person in the movie. But and so the origin story of Todd, the main character, is that he's learning about the Holocaust. But it's not really his origin story. It's like, no, it's not. It's like the origin story of the Holocaust. Yeah. Because like, we're seeing like, like the history of the camps and like the names of different places and dates and then pictures of Hitler and then slowly we see the pictures of of like young Ian McKellen emerging. Um, and then, yeah. And so from there, Todd... I think it's within the first five minutes, Todd blackmails Dusander. Yeah, he sees... he sees. Uh, well, Arthur Denker is what he's pretending to be, but his Nazi real name is Kurt Dusander. And he sees him on the bus, he goes to his house, and he sees like a newspaper on the front lawn and just grabs it and is like, all right, Let's go. <laughs> Just instantly, like... But he, we also said that he had, like, dusted his mailbox for fingerprints and stuff, so he'd been, like... I guess that should be a hint that he's kind of a psychopath. Yeah, and so, like, <laughs> as much as you say, like, they don't overdo it, I feel like maybe I'm just... Because I'm just familiar enough with, like this sort of movie where I was just like, okay, he's not a likable character. Like, sure. we're not... The, at no point does the movie try to humanize his curiosity about the Holocaust. It's not like, like, oh yeah, when I was that age, I loved and, the Holocaust. Like, it's and, not and anything actually, like that. And actually, what the movie does, instead of making it something you would, like, sympathize with him about, is they sexualize it. 
Yeah. They sexualize the Holocaust. It's not, I don't even necessarily that they sexualize the Holocaust, but they sexualize men's bodies and in a, in a way that unfortunately seems to constantly coincide with the Holocaust imagery. Like, it doesn't seem... I would never, ever accuse Brad Singer of trying to fetishize the Holocaust, but Although I... Although I did write that down. Well, well okay. But, yeah, I don't think... Because, like... Not, not, there's no moment where I was like, ooh, they're trying to make the Holocaust look good. They are, they definitely, no, they don't do that, but, but they make like, it more of like a sexual... They put it in the context of like this young, athletic boy. Like they say he's a senior in high school, but they also say flat out he's a 16-year-old senior and, in high school. So and he's actually, still underage. And actually, when they were filming, I found out that Brad Renfro was only 14. Whoa, in the whoa. He, looks, he looks older than that. But Yeah, they started filming when he was 14. So he maybe was like 15 by the so end. So they filmed but... like a nude scene with this 14-year-old oh. for this movie. And that's actually... Okay, so... Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, so sexualizing... <laughs> okay. In the book, they do sexualize the Holocaust. To they the do. extent okay. that... Well, as I said, Todd is a psychopath. He gets to the point, because he's 13 and then 14, and he's starting to have these sexual feelings. But in general, he's... Even that is kind of a show for him. He knows what's supposed to be normal. However, he does have some sexual fantasies about concentration camps. Okay. Oh, <laughs> Just throwing it out there. Glad that wasn't in the film. Yeah. They they were at least smart enough to know that, like, that was... There was too much. <laughs> but also, considering how, like, this movie is almost two hours long. And we talked about this, like, I want to say, like, maybe 10 or 15 minutes of that is montages showing the passing of time. <laughs> and so I feel like... Yeah, even I mean, even for the novella, if you're going to try to convey half that stuff, this movie would be like a miniseries. <laughs> like, there's there's so much that is being like just Ugh, like but it'd be shorthanded a really or whatever. It'd be a really boring miniseries, yeah. but it'd also be like obviously way more horrific too. And that's kind of the thing where we're saying it's it's weirdly boring and forgettable is that it does all this like Nazi stuff and sexualization of young boys and everything like that, and then still finds time to get into like a group about getting your grades up and, um, like, things where it's, like, sort of problems with Brad Renfro and this girl that he's not dating, but, like, he's being... I don't know. I don't really understand the reference. Did, did they get into the relationship with him and Becky in the book? A little bit. He does it to blend in because okay. he knows he needs to present as normal, even though he's definitely not psychologically. Okay. So there's even a scene... He doesn't have any interest in her. He only hooks up with her because he knows he can. And um, he even starts debating, like, how many times do I have to sleep with her to appear normal before I can break up with her? Because obviously oh, it's not going to be that she's not putting out, because in the book she's totally a slut. And, uh, <laughs> like, she sleeps with everybody. But he, he actually is, like, rationalizing, like, <laughs> it's five times enough to sleep with her and then break up with her. Because if I'm getting some, no one will understand why I broke up with her. It's... Well, and isn't... Yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah, it, I read the Wikipedia page of the book, so I'm not going to claim to know the book very well. But I read that there's even a part where his girlfriend is... Jew is she Jewish in the book? And so he, like, blames his impotence on her being Jewish? Toward the end, I think he think he starts to believe or think that she's Jewish. There was a little bit of okay. that, but okay. not too, too much, okay. as I recall. I was just curious if that, that was actually a part of the book. Anyway, so going back to the movie, so he starts blackmailing... He blackmails uh, Ian McKellen into telling him these tales of, like, what it was like working in Bergen-Belsen and Auschwitz during, like, the end of World War II. And Patton. So, Patton was, like, the bigger one, actually. Oh, yeah, I missed that one. But uh, I, I wrote, just, like, the, the key is that he's at least 
during like the the part of the war where there's there's nothing he could have been doing other than like exterminating Jewish people. Yeah. Uh, like it's he's very clearly in with the worst of the worst, and so. He gets him to start telling these stories, and this is like, we're very early into the movie when we hear lengthy descriptions of gas chambers full of people dying and, like, piling on each other, and, like, what happened to the children? Well, they died first, and they were the ones that they climbed on to try to get... It's, like, really dark. Yeah, during those scenes, I was like, I'm purposefully trying to tune out because I don't want to hear this. I don't want to... I mean... I've learned about the Holocaust. I don't want to watch it in a movie uh, unless I'm, you know, maybe watching a documentary or something. Yeah. But... Well, and the point is that it's really gruesome. And, yeah. And yeah, they go into that great. There's that scene where they go into great detail about the gas chambers and how like they, there was a leak in the gas. And so it's like half poison, Ugh. half oxygen. So instead of just dying, they're like twitching. It's it's very. I mean, like we're giving you basically everything. It's does, really it's still, gruesome. It's still very right away. In this movie. And the main character is, like, a teenage boy. And the movie is just like, all right, we're going here. And... <laughs> no and, going back. And so we have... And so we have, um, like, soon after that, there's, like, a scene... One of the first scenes where we see, like, Brad Renfro's character sort of sexualized. Like, this, like... We're... Okay. I should say, because if we... If we're going to talk about this, I should bring it up now. Um, Brian Singer has been accused of things. He's just been accused. There's obviously no... All of the allegedly. All the allegedly. Just assume I say allegedly over anything I might say. <laughs> but there's a whole case relating to the, the fact that, um, like, he was accused of basically sex, non-consensual sex with an underage actor and it was it, the charge the charges fell apart i don't know if it actually yeah okay so yeah. i actually have some uh some, some, of that some facts about that yeah. he has been accused of sexual assault gender violence you know taking advantage of people in a non-consensual way uh i think it's about four times yeah um the first time was because of apt pupil yeah. He there's a scene we we alluded to it a little bit, but there's a scene in the movie where Brad Renfro is playing base baseball, not baseball, basketball. <laughs> uh, you'd think he'd play baseball. We'll but, get into that. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he's playing ba basketball. They go uh, with a bunch of guys uh, in high school. They go to take a shower, and everybody's naked. I mean, there's a bunch of like 14 year old dudes. Yeah. This is when you see Brad Renfro naked. Right. You see Brad Renfro's, like, pubic hair in this scene. Oh, yeah, his bush it's is uncomfortable. out uncomfortable. Yeah, it's, like, it's way out too much. About, yeah. <laughs> so, um, because of that scene, a couple extras tried to sue Brad Singer, saying that um, they did not know that they were going to be naked and, like, filmed naked as extras, and basically saying they got taken advantage of and all this stuff. Yeah. The, the case fell apart. I, I don't know if it was, like, settled or... Uh, or if it got dismissed or what, I, I can't recall, but basically it, it didn't go through. Yeah. It just was an accusation and then that's it. And that has happened three more times to Brian Singer. But there was a, like a 10 year gap between this movie and the next accusation. So, uh, maybe he like learned his lesson or, you know, or was being more cautious and then, you know. Well, the article I read... I, I want to say it was Hollywood Reporter, but it, I, I yep. can't say. Okay, well, they were talking about the fact that, like, even basically people who are, like, 
that was like 100% verifiable that he keeps like younger men with him on set. Like he would have like, while he was directing X-Men, he had like a 20 year old, like young male assistant and like, like stuff like that, where it's just like, I totally get it. It's like exactly what every straight director who uh, like takes advantage of their power does. He just, that's just what he did. But he also has these accusations, which again, not proven, but this movie has so much sexualization of an underage boy that knowing that makes it more prominent. And that's really what I want to say about this movie I want to get into. is not that we're saying, like, this movie proves that he's an evil man. I'm not even remotely coming close to saying that. I'm just saying it is deeply uncomfortable to watch someone's fetish creep into this Nazi movie. <laughs> like, it's just a yeah. bad... That's really what I'm saying. It's okay if you... Whatever your fetish is. I have no problem unless it's a bad, illegal fetish. Or but, it hurts someone else, yeah. But if you... It, like, say... Like, let's just say... Let me just equivocate. Let's say Brian Singer, like, he... he like, Quentin Tarantino's foot fetish. And, like... <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, th he was making a movie about, <laughs> like, the Nazis, Nazis, and then every once in a while, like, there's a scene where, like, Ian McKellen, like, grabs Brad Renfro's foot, and is like, rubbing his <laughs> fingers between his toes, you'd be like, what the fuck is going on right now? <laughs> like, and so, this, what I'm saying is, like, with the stuff with Brad Renfro, you're already, like, upset because of all this disturbing stuff, and then you see a shot where Brad Renfro is reflecting on these horrors that he's heard about and he's laying in bed and he's shot he's like in the way totally like naked. the moonlight is like ref bouncing off of his abs and then he wakes up and he's just drenched in sweat like brad renfro is wet 50 percent of his movie <laughs> like, he's just always sweaty and just like his hair is like hanging down his face and um but like in the shower scene like we said he's naked we see his ass we see his Pews. He's just like really taking a shower, and while he's showering, I like how you just spit that out. Pews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, he's showering, and this the movie has like a sort of like yellow color scheme, and he's like closes his eyes and he's rubbing his hair. I don't know why I'm literally doing this right now. I'm describing it, but as he's no one would have known. Yeah. That. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but as he's doing this, he the scene changes and he's like seeing a Holocaust concentration camp shower. And it's all these like gangly starved Jewish men with shaved heads. And he's looking around and they're all just like looking at him and there's like steam filling up the room and the color is shifted to this like dark blue grayish color. And then all of a sudden he like snaps out of it and everyone has left the locker room and his back is red from how long the water's just been like scalding yeah, him. Yeah, he's been daydreaming about the and, no, and again, like nobody even, like maybe if someone like tried to shake him out of it, like he just was like, oh, just like, <laughs> like so deep in this fantasy. But it's like this, this is we're half an hour into the movie. <laughs> this is like what yeah, has maybe happened so half far. An hour. Like he's throwing us in pretty deep. So, I'm yeah. glad you mentioned, it, it felt sped up to me too, but I wasn't sure if that's because I read the book, which, you know, takes its time, yeah. getting everywhere, um, but it felt really accelerated. Yeah. Well, and then that's, that, again, that makes it so weird that it really get, pushes us into all this stuff, and then soon after is when we get into the academic plotline. Now, someone would have, like, set this up. <laughs> it's almost so stupidly normal, it, it shouldn't be set up, but we need to talk about it in relation to everything. 
else. Okay, so once Todd starts getting really into uh, this Nazi concentration camp stuff, <laughs> he starts losing sleep, and he had been this really good student, so his grades start slipping and everything. And in the book, it really plays up that his parents, you know, admire the fact that he uh, does really well in school. The name-apt pupil came from a comment on one of his report cards, mm. and his mom references it all the time because ah. they're so, you know, proud of their son. Yeah. He does well academically. And um, I think the reason the academic part is such a big part of the plot <laughs> is because that's what Dusander has on him. Um, and that's how he manipulates mm. him. So in the first portion of the book and the movie, Todd is manipulating Dusander to tell him all these stories because he has this dirt on him because he knows who he is. And in the second portion, Dusander kind of says how they're in it together now. Yeah. You have to, well, you know. What was the line? Wait, I, I, which, I, I'm sorry. We're I fucking each other. Oh, yeah. My, is what Dusander <laughs> says. My dear boy, don't you see? We are fucking each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is a line from the book. So you can't okay. say that's just Brian Singer yeah, on that one. That's fair. Right. Um, <laughs> but it, it seems like Brian Singer took you know, probably verbatim lines from the book, and he then did. somehow made them super sexual. <laughs> <laughs> like when Ian McClellan says, "Like, oh, we're we're fucking each other," he says it like they're they're what six inches away yeah. from each other. <laughs> it's whispered too. It's yeah. not like we are fucking each other. It's like, yeah, it's. <laughs> <laughs> I like the first way you played that. <laughs> That would be the more Naziest way, way to pronounce, I guess. Uh, but sorry, Naziest. Naziest. Whatever. Come on. I, I, we're interrupting Courtney. <laughs> oh, just... <laughs> so anyway, he concocts this plot where he's going to pretend, because Todd gets this note from his guidance counselor sent home with him saying, I have to meet with your parents um, because this is, you know, You're this failing. is bad. We have to figure this out. And Dusander con concocts this whole plot where he's going to pretend to be the boy's grandfather and go in and say, well, there's problems at home and, you know, the mom's drinking and their marriage is falling apart mm -hmm. and it's affecting Todd academically. And, um, and none of that's true. No, none of that's true. But they actually go in on it together, which is not the case in the movie. Yeah. In the book, they, they concoct this together because um, Dusander actually asks, like, he wants to know details about Todd's family. So if it does get fact-checked or, you know, he can mm. kind of, it can be backed up, basically. They didn't have time for it in the movie. No. <laughs> I assume it just was like, it's, uh, I, I don't know, this, Brian Singer's still a new director. And even after his last movie, his usual suspects right before this. So he's coming off an Oscar-winning movie, but there still had to have been studio notes that was like, the kid can't be blatantly evil. Like, stuff like that. Like, I, I feel like that's a stereotype note. Like, as yeah. much as, like, like what's the audience going to think? There has to be an know, audience Paul. here. It seems like he got kind of studio carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. I know. It's hard to say with this. Because it, it seems, like, because it does seem like it's cleaned up in certain ways. But at the same time, I'm saying this about a movie that is, like, that, most people this, So who knows? This movie cost $14 million. And I checked, and it only grossed about... Like a little less than nine million dollars, yeah. so it didn't even make its budget back, which makes total sense. How would you advertise this movie, or like who is the audience for this movie? It's is this movie rated R? Yeah. Okay. I feel like they could have done more with that. Yeah. The other thing I was going, I was kind of thinking as you were talking about this sexualization of <laughs> young Brad Renfro. Yeah. Is, he was a teen, well, maybe not sex icon, but he was like. A teen heartthrob. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So I kind of wonder if some of this wasn't playing into that, like, fan service. It's that they show sweaty Brad, Brad Renfro yeah. having teenage girls. But at the same time, 
the girls that target demographic wouldn't have been able to get into this <laughs> yeah. movie. Right. Yeah, teenage girls aren't aren't going, oh, I want to go see this movie about this young guy who is taught by an older Nazi. But they did want to see Brad Renfro, and they did want to see him shirtless. That's yeah. so... I've seen some bad movies because of really handsome actors. Right? You know? <laughs> I've definitely been a victim of that. We just saw Life, and <laughs> yep. it was not good, but... Jake Gyllenhaal, man. Don't see life, everybody. Okay, um... So, one of the other things that I wrote down that gets said, um, that I think is very telling about the thesis statement of this movie, or, or even the book, is, um, Brad Renfro's parents in the movie, uh, they invite Dusander to, to dinner because they're like, hey, you've been hanging out with this older German guy who lives down the street. Maybe we should meet him. <laughs> and so they bring him to dinner, and, like, his grandpa comes to dinner, too? Who was that guy? <laughs> oh, he was in a wheelchair, so it was his grandfather. Okay. Oh, that comes back later. So, yeah, so the grandparents are there, the parents are there, Brad Renfro's there, and Dusander is there, and they're having dinner, and Dusander's charming the pants off of everybody, and... Todd's parents say, oh, you've been really quiet this whole time. And he's like, oh, well, I've heard all these stories. And his mom says, oh, Todd, that's so rude of you. <laughs> and Dusander says something to the effect of, oh, he's just being honest. Honesty is a privilege. And I was just thinking about the idea, the concept of honesty being a privilege. Like, okay, when you're young, you can be fearlessly honest. But as you get older, you have to hide yourself or like hide portions of who you are because being honest about who you are might offend other people it fits in line with the idea that like everybody has stuff that they are hiding and you can't be honest because once someone knows that about you they can leverage it like mm. leverage leverage seems to be the key motivating factor in most of the plot points yeah, like because somebody point. has yeah. leverage over somebody else and I was trying to like I wanted to at one point try to like draw out a chart for the leverage but it's basically like uh, Dusander and Todd switch leverage between each other and then like when the hobo shows up he has no leverage he has like a little <laughs> bit of leverage and that leverage uh, leads to his downfall uh, but everyone else is basically stays separate until the very end yeah. and so nobody has that no one says anything to get leverage over them and no one learns anything about todd or do sander to get leverage over them either so it's almost like they clearly the leverage part is being emphasized but it's so segregated from everything else that it's not really a comment on the whole world as much as like facets of the, I don't know it's it's well and I, I wonder if it's specific to uh, and this is again a Stephen King thing but uh when I was doing my research uh one of the things that was pointed out about apt pupil and Stephen King in general is that he's got a real fascination with younger male uh relationships with an older male and that power structure and just like you know how the leverage or the power can go either way. Yeah. That's like a real theme in a lot of his I books. I mean, hell, Shawshank Redemption with Andy Dufresne and the Warden, even. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, leverage... I mean, granted, leverage is like a very broad idea that could be applied to a lot of stuff, but Stephen King does definitely get into Well, those. and he has a real thing for, like, the older 
a man in the the friendship or relationship or whatever it is, they usually end up manipulating the younger person into doing something they wouldn't ordinarily do, and it's usually not something good. Yeah. And I was even I was thinking about um, in eleven twenty two sixty three. Spoiler alert: <laughs> the in that book. The main character gets manipulated by an older diner owner to go into the past. And I don't think that's something he normally would have done, but because of his relationship with the diner owner, and it's like a very close and like paternal relationship, he ends up doing it and like that's the whole book yeah. <laughs> is him going into the past because he made a promise to the diner owner. And I really love when that... in. This movie, how when that shift occurs, right before that great we're fucking each other line, um, uh, Dusander says something about, you know, this American self-confidence. This boy thought he could just manipulate this old man who's been on the run most of his life <laughs> and successfully on yeah. the run. Like, yeah. no one suspects anything. And so when he, like, turns the tables on him, it is it is a pretty great scene. Yeah. Oh, uh, I love his smirk in that, yes. that scene. Yes. Agreed. His smile is, like, s s so satisfying in a really weird way. Yeah. <laughs> we Elon is good in this yeah, movie. Ian McKellen he's is great. He, yeah. I was watching just thinking about, like, I can't think of a movie where I've seen him be bad, but this is one of my favorite performances of his. Because yeah. this is, like, a deeply unlikable character and he doesn't make him likable but he makes you interested in him and the mm -hmm. way he thinks and the makeup is even so good that he's like so fully realized as this yeah, like Nazi in hiding and just like this gross old man who like doesn't socialize for a lot of reasons and I don't know I thought he was great and I really like Brad Renfro because I grew up watching a lot of, like I my my mom made me watch The Client all the time and <laughs> Ghost World's one of my favorite movies, and there's a bunch of other things I've seen him in, and so I thought he was really good in this, too, especially if he was He's in Bully. Oh, yeah, Bully. God, Bully is so fucking good. Bully is, like, one of the best Brad Renfro movies. He said it's his favorite movie that he did. Yeah, he should be proud I mean, of he's, dead he's dead now, so... Dead now. Rest in peace. All right. But, um, yeah. but uh, yeah, he, he is really good, especially because he's 14 years old, and he's playing against Ian McKellen, uh, and he's, yeah. like, holding his own. He's not... I mean, it's, it's, like, one of those things where... <laughs> this is extreme comparison, but I think of, like, There Will Be Blood. Like, Ian McKellen is to Daniel Day-Lewis in this movie what Brad Renfro is to Paul Dano in that. Where, like, Ian McKellen gives, like, the great towering performance, and Brad Renfro isn't as good, but he is really holding his own in tough scenes. And this movie is almost entirely just the two of them. And, uh, uh, like, to put uh, this type of movie on the shoulders of a 14-year-old boy... It's really incredible that he pulled it. It's a lot out. of pressure. It's a yeah. lot of pressure, and it's a tough movie. It's not just like a Little Miss Sunshine role where it's like, I just got to be a kid. It's like, yeah. no, he has to be a very specific type of evil kid. <laughs> but I feel and, like that only came out in a couple of scenes. Like, for yeah. the first Porsche, like, big chunk of the movie, I felt like Brad Renfro just seemed kind of dazed. Like, I yeah. don't know. I thought he was a little wooden, but then he had scenes where he really played it big, and it worked really mm. well. And he never closed his mouth for the majority of the yes. film. Yes, it was so distracting <laughs> to me that he's always just staring like slack jaw with That's his true, mouth yeah. hanging open. I guess I just know a lot of guys that were like that. So <laughs> it just seems really normal to me. But then again, he is the valedictorian, so you think yeah. he would like not carry himself with like a stoned glaze. Yeah, but then on the other hand, I have to point out he did die of a drug overdose. Yeah, heroin though. Yeah, he had some drug actor. issues. Yeah. So, yeah. One of his quotes on IMDb was. Uh, 
if you've never done drugs, don't do them. If you have done drugs, pray. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, you know. Man, more bleak. What's going to make this bleaker? Really bleak. Well, okay, wait. I want to go back to something because you just praised the performances in this yeah. movie. And I honestly think that the directing is pretty good. Yeah, yeah. agreed. Uh, there's some really great shots. Like, the one shot that I wrote down was when... Um, they're, it's right before the shower scene when they're uh, playing basketball and the camera goes from way above the basketball court down. So it's yeah. first hovering completely over top of the, ba the basketball game and then it slowly moves down so you can see the basketball game from the parallel. Yeah. Up. And it's a beautiful shot. Mm -hmm. They actually use that shot a couple times. They do it at the graduation scene and stuff. But... So if the directing's good, the acting's good, what is it about this movie that doesn't work? Well, first of all, did you see who wrote the screenplay? Yes. All right. Okay. <laughs> His name's Brandon Boyce. He is actually good friends with Brian Singer, which is part of why that he got to write it. Yeah. But the only other movie he's written is Wicker Park. Yeah. I mean, he he wrote a few other movies that I. That's I've the never... other famous movie. Yeah, the other famous Wicker movie. Park. And we live basically in Wicker Park, and we have not even been able to. I've get... seen that movie, and it's not good. I have not. Yeah, I've never been able to finish it. It's it's pretty bad. Uh, but uh, yeah, because it's not even necessarily that. But that's not fair, though. Yeah. I mean, that's not even a fair thing to say because this movie is based on a book yeah. by Stephen King, and Stephen King is a good author. No, yeah. I know. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying because I'm just saying like adaptation is tough. Like, sure. Because I, I, I'll say like for example, I think the movie Zodiac is not a good movie. Because I've read the book Zodiac, and so mm -hmm. when I watched the movie, I compared against that. And the author, the guy who wrote the movie Zodiac, has written nothing but bad movies except Zodiac. And it's one of those things where people are like, like, oh yeah, it's a great screenplay. It's like, so wait, everyone believes that this guy who seemingly can't write to save his life suddenly got all his shit together to write a great movie. Or is it maybe that the material is just so inherently interesting that mm. any screenwriter could turn it into something? Like, that's what we've been hearing a lot about Colossal, the Anne Hathaway movie, is that the screenplay isn't great, but the idea is so good that it's like you gotta see it just to see how, the, just the to see the idea. idea. Plays out, and sure. so I think, I think, yeah, like, the, the movie isn't unwatchable because it's a Stephen King story. Stephen yeah. King not only has written novels, but he knows how to write He's written for the screen, and so he understands what needs to be. Yeah, those yeah, are but terrible. Those movies are not good. But the point is, he at least understands plot. He understands what needs to happen. He understands how to keep interest. He understands how to develop a story. And so those elements are in there. If most of the time, what seems to be the problem is like abbreviating them enough to like keep the movie interesting without oversimplifying. But. I guess if this movie is a miniseries, the tone probably could have worked because we could be more slowly introduced to certain ideas, like the main character being a psychopath and the, the reality of what a Nazi criminal would have done. We could have been slowly introduced to those, but instead it's what we're thrown into right away. So then when we get into the more human stuff, like you said, the, the stuff with the school and the grades and everything, that's clearly set up as the parallel to like, well, now do Sander has the upper hand, mm -hmm. but it, his upper hand is, I know about your grades, and the other one's upper hand is, I know about the people <laughs> you murdered. <laughs> and, and so, it just like, 
We don't. We, it's like the movie is. We start in an exploitation movie, and then the movie is like, but let's care about some real world stuff for a little bit that you might actually be able to relate to. That's, well, the other thing, the other aspect that Dusander has on Todd, though, is that not only does it's not so much that he knows about his yeah. grades, it's that if he fucks this up that badly, and you know, actually tells people. But he's gonna. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna rat you out. I'm gonna tell people you're a war criminal. He's like, yeah. I've known you for months. <laughs> I'm gonna be telling everybody yeah. that your name. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, that's the only time he uses his name. They play this up a lot in the book for no apparent reason. I, I'm not quite sure what they're trying to say with it. But that he only refers to him as boy or the boy. He never says Todd, except when he's explaining that if you rat me out. I'm going to be saying your name. I'm going to be yeah. saying Todd Bowden, Todd Bowden, to anyone who will listen. Mm. And you're going down with me, well, that's basically what he says. Well, then I guess here's the problem, then, because, yeah, that does that does balance it out even more. I would say that the problem is the movie is well-directed, but we, at no point does the movie put you necessarily into the point of view of Brad Renfro. And if you are supposed to understand that stress of having a Nazi have leverage over you, then the movie has failed at conveying yeah. that other than like, oh, he's going to be screwed. But we don't necessarily have sympathy for him. We don't relate to his goals. So we're like watching them from outside. And so that middle section, which should have a lot of tension and we're like, oh my God, he, this, these grades really matter. It, we do, we aren't involved with it, and then they introduce a montage, so we further get distanced <laughs> from it, yeah. because, and so it just, everything in the middle seems to just work overboard to distance us emotionally from it, whereas the, the exploitative stuff, you can't help but get emotionally involved with hearing descriptions of, like, ho uh, concentration camps, or, like, all these, like, abrupt sexual moments. Like, these things, like, you can't, you automatically react to them, and then the other plot stuff, you're like, okay, intellectually, I follow this and understand it, and I'm waiting until something more noteworthy happens. I don't know, that's yeah. what I would guess. And in the book, they definitely play up, during the academic bits, they definitely play up that Dusander is, like, standing over him, like, you're daydreaming. Yeah. Read your fucking book. Like, he becomes a real Nazi about it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he definitely is, like, really, you know, just authoritative and standing over him all the time. Whereas in the movie, he's just, like, in the living room watching Bewitched and, yeah. like, totally ignoring the fact that Todd's studying. So How? it's a weird... How it's done weirdly. Have money? I mean, this is, like, a totally unnecessary question, but... Why Why did he never work? He had some... I think they do mention he in the book that he has, like, some stocks and stuff. Yeah, he was just living on that. Like, actually, they showed that in the movie, and I don't know how... I could be totally wrong, because I don't necessarily know that I'm right, but I think at one point, they're going through his house after he gets arrested, and they open up the book of blue chip stocks. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think, yeah, if that's what it was in the book, then they yeah. were just like... It's the it's the movie thing of like listen if you really care here's the clue but you don't actually care yeah. so I I do feel kind of getting back to what you were saying yeah. before the story in the movie is sort of the weak point yeah <laughs> which is sad to say but it's not Stephen King's strongest either no. it's like far yeah. from it and the third act of the story in the book gets into Todd starts murdering homeless people okay. and Dusander yeah. starts murdering homeless people separately. Ooh. And they don't know that they're both doing it until the end when Todd comes over and Dusander's had the heart attack when he kind of botched that hobo murder. Yeah. Um, and that's when they kind of... Dusander does this really good thing in the book where he says, I think you have some experience with this. Because he 
has put it together that Todd was doing this. Cause I, I think it was like from the newspaper, there'd been okay. a few bits about mm. these, um, homeless people who had been brutally murdered and it, it definitely gets a lot darker and a lot more into murder. Okay. Well, actually, since, yeah, since you brought that up, let's talk about the one, the one hobo murder that does remain in this movie. Casey uh, Jones. Yeah. Casey Jones, uh, the great Elias Codius. Uh, let me, uh, like, I, I, I need to give a little bit of setup for this and then, uh, we'll get into it, but. Is your or, setup that Elias Codius is the best? He is the best, but I'm specifically setting up the scene because the scene with him doesn't happen unless this one specific thing earlier happens, which is that Todd orders from New Jersey a, from a costume shop that sells this sort of thing, a very accurate Nazi outfit. For, like a full body a Nazi uniform, uniform for, uh, for, uh, outfit. Yeah, outfit <laughs> what um, am I going to wear today? <laughs> but for, for Ian McKellen, uh, he has, he gets this Nazi uniform. Um, Ian McKellen even says like, well, I've got a promotion. Uh, like, cause it's like a, it's a, a colonel or it's something. A, yeah, like it's a higher rank than, uh, he had, but he has that outfit and it is introduced during this part of this movie where you kind of get the idea that because, uh, Todd is forcing, Sander to like relive all this Nazi stuff, Sander's regressing into like more of his Nazi self. Mm-hmm. And like, like you see like when he's like, Todd's making him march and he gets like really into marching in a very weirdly edited sequence. And, um, and then he like tries to burn up the cat uh, later, which I guess we will get, come back around to talk about the cats and stuff. But <laughs> so there's a scene where he's like alone, uh, Sander is alone in his house and he's wearing the Nazi uh, uniform in his, I think in his bedroom. And he's just like standing around looking in the mirror and he looks out the window because he hears someone digging through the garbage and Elias Codius is a homeless man who's like, has like a bottle or something he's digging around and he looks, he turns and looks up at Dusander through the window and sees Dusander in his uniform. Like a blatantly, like an unmistakable Nazi uniform. And then uh, Dusander sees him too and like steps out of view this leads to uh, the homeless man saying, like, well, I have leverage over this old guy. And he sees the old guy on the bus, follows him home, and we get to see Dusander murder this guy. But I want to talk about this specifically. I mean, we, we should talk about this in a lot in a bunch of things for it. But I want to talk about the fact that we were kind of talking about the homoerotic imagery being brought in. Was there a hobo, or are the hobos, or is there a character who is gay that is murdered in this, in the book? It's kind of implied in the movie that Elias Cotius's homeless character is a hooker. Well, that's, that's what I was, I, I, he, I thought he fly out said it, and then he says, in the morning, if everything goes well, could you give me $10? He says, first I need a drink, then a shower, then I'll do anything you say to do, Sander. Uh... <laughs> Stephen King loves this. Yeah. <laughs> I've read way too many books where there's like a homeless person or some other kind of down and out type who offers to like suck a kid's dick for yeah. like a dollar. <laughs> it happens a lot. Okay. So it it's not that um, Dusander, it's not that he's killing a gay person. It's that this person is, he's played up, I yeah. guess, is maybe gay in the movie. Okay. But in the books, it's always just somebody who's so like, 
Death scuzzy trip. that they'll do anything okay. for a buck. Sure. Well, in this too, I also wonder because he we he's wearing like a sparkly rainbow. It's so weird. Outfit. Like it's like the shirt is like sparkly gray, but he has like Mardi Gras beads or something. Or like some like, kind of scarf that's really neck. sparkly. And it's yeah, it's pointedly it's rainbow and sparkly. Like they somebody had to be like, no, that's distracting. And Brian Singer's like, it's staying on. <laughs> that's how he looks in this scene. <laughs> what? Person where I don't know. I know, but that's that's what I'm saying because it's like that stuff, and then the stuff with the showers, and then stuff we'll get into with Mr. French, like all of these things where it's like it might have been in some form. Well, in and the all book. the implications of the uh, the older man having power over younger. Yeah, men. there's just like all this stuff where it's like it's not necessarily being like this movie is about homosexuality, but the it's it's like and it's not like it is even like like the movie is trying to make a statement about it, but it's because the director is a gay man. No. He's he, not? He's bisexual. Oh, he's bisexual. He has a kid. Okay, I didn't know that. Well, yeah. I just, okay. Well, even still then, like, then why is it so prominent? Because I was assuming, like, okay, well, it's just I'm a straight I, man, so I wouldn't think necessarily to have these signifiers. That's the way I was approaching it. But if he's bisexual... It's in it, and at people, the novel itself isn't as focused on these Not things. At all. Then I wonder. It just. It, I, that's why. Again, we tie. We talk about the the whole the well, case and everything. Like, why does this movie in particular emphasize these elements so much? All right. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, but then again, like. Just because you're gay doesn't mean you're going to write gay themes into whatever you but write. But also, no, but and on top of that, write gay themes where, like, the gay people are either terrorized or the homoerotic stuff is like, well, they're, they're bad characters. Or, <laughs> or, or thinking it's, these things. Or it's, it's like, couched in Holocaust imagery. Yeah, so it's like, <laughs> even if the idea is like, oh, yeah, well, it's this very bizarre thing where I guess what we're coming to realize is that this movie somehow accidentally made itself creepier. Just by, like, somehow <laughs> randomly... Uh, combining well, these elements. You saying that, what genre would you say this movie is? I would call it a horror movie just because it's not thrilling. <laughs> I'm like, I'd call it a psychological thriller, but it's not much of a thriller. Yeah, it's it's really, just psychological, yeah. sort of? I would say it's a horror movie just because it's the what it seems to suggest about humanity is horrific. Mm-hmm. Especially the note it ends on. Um, and the things that people get away with. Oh my God. Uh, okay, I guess let's. Can no, I let's not go there yet. No, I want to talk, talk about, about Mr. French. I want to talk about the genre stuff. Okay, but, because Brian Singer describes this movie as a horror movie. Yeah, but to me, this movie is not really scary. No, I no. actually think this movie would be better if it was scary. I yeah. think if they if they I, kept in the murder stuff, it does get pretty good, like yeah. in the book. That yeah. was a pretty strong portion of the book. Because it is inherently, like, the Holocaust to me is terrifying. That is a scary, yeah. scary thing. And so if they had just, I don't want to say, like, amped that up, because I don't think anyone should ever amp up <laughs> the Holocaust, but I don't think it needs to be amped no, up because it's scary already. One of the but, best horror movies I've ever seen is a Holocaust movie. Right, and so I, one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the genre is because this movie actually almost got made three or four times before Brian Singer made it. Oh, wow. So this book, it came out in 82. Actually, it came out right after The Shining. He wrote The Shining, and then he wrote this. Hmm. And a, a producer wanted to option this as a, as a movie. They originally got James Mason 
Oh, as the Doosander character. That would be so good. Wouldn't that have been great? Like, I was thinking about Bigger Than Life. Yeah. If this movie had been done in that style, then it would be terrifying. <laughs> be so good, yeah. But James Mason died, so he couldn't do it. Then they got Richard Burton. Another good choice. Yes, wow. But then he died. And so it got it got like pushed off for a while. Maybe that's why they selected a like middle-aged actor. <laughs> They're like, we can't afford any more deaths. But so then Actually, in the 80s, in 87, they filmed uh, a version of this movie. They got 45 minutes of this movie done before production finally halted. They, like, ran out of money or something. Oh, weird. But, so, uh, Stephen King came out and said, like, yeah, the 45 minutes I saw was really good. <laughs> and they just scrapped it. And so this, this project almost got made three times before Brian Singer finally made it. And for me, it's like... Why was everyone so intent on making this movie? Well, they were intent on making because it's Stephen King. Yeah. It's the same reason why Christine got made. Even though if you described the plot of Christine to most people who don't know Stephen King, it just sounds absurd. But Christine is the best movie. Oh, it's great. So it's absolutely watch great. what you say. Yeah. Uh... And it's a John Carpenter movie, so I'm never going to criticize it. <laughs> but just the idea that people are like, you know what? The Shining was great. Let's get an evil car movie. Yeah. Like, Stephen King's <laughs> <a> hot property. <laughs> Yeah, but so, like, this movie almost got made three times, and I wonder if those <coughs> three other efforts would have made this more of a horror movie, or yeah. if it would have been as sexual, maybe, or... Maybe there'll be a documentary like uh, Jodorowsky's Dune, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who would who would make the documentary? But nobody cares enough about After Pupil yeah. for that to ever Carol happen. Morris is After Pupil. <laughs> I just think that's so interesting that it had been in the works for like a decade, you know, before it finally got made in 98. And I really was thinking about if James Mason was going to play the Nazi character, I, and I'm sorry if you're not familiar with the movie, but there's this movie called Bigger Than Life where James Mason, he plays the father character, and in the movie he gets, a, is it addicted to... It's like cortisone. Yeah, yeah, he gets addicted to some kind of medication, and he basically he needs it to live. He needs the medicine to live, but he gets but addicted. But because to live. he needs the medicine to live, the medicine starts having this terrible effect on him, where he becomes like a madman, and he starts like harassing and abusing his family. And it's really a scary movie. Like it doesn't sound scary. Like oh, this dad character takes a pill and then he turns into. Uh, a scary dad. <laughs> but it's from but, the director of Rebel Without a Cause, and so it's shot kind of in that, like, sort of, like, super heightened, colorful, Yeah, like, you know, it's got, heavy like, shadows. Yeah. yeah, heavy shadows, and I wish there had been more heavy shadows, oh, and... Yeah. I want to talk about the lighting in After People. Okay. Did you have any thoughts? Did any... Did anyone else notice the lighting in this movie? Especially yeah, in I, the shower scene. I noticed a few things, but I didn't write anything down. Okay, so, yeah. because immediately when he first goes to Dusander's house to start this blackmail game... It's like this soft golden lighting. Yeah. And it's, you know, everything's suffused with this like hazy golden light. And I, I didn't notice it until a little bit later. So then I started watching for it. It seems like as things progress, every shot, because a lot of it takes place in Dusander's house. Mm -hmm. And every scene seems to have more shadow mm. and get darker. Maybe it was just... I started noticing it or maybe because the scenes were taking place at different times. But it did seem like... At first, it was obnoxiously golden. It yeah. was like a really crappy Instagram <laughs> filter. And then as it goes, it just gets darker and darker. To say nothing of when he's in the basement, yeah, uh, that lighting enough. was insane. Oh, yeah. In the basement. And then in any scene where one of them, or, well, Todd really, 
is having his thoughts on the concentration camp stuff. It's like this crazy blue yeah. and really... It, it's like all color has been drained out of the Yeah. Image you know here. what, Courtney, though? In X-Men, the big lighting colors are yellow and blue. And Wolverine. Well, and, also, and Brad Renfro wears a yellow-blue striped shirt prominently multiple times. Yeah. Is that a varsity jacket yellow and blue? Maybe not. I don't it's know. yellow yeah. and green. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. So that's weird. I didn't think about those color choices. But yeah. Well, and yellow and blue are, are very simple lighting choices because yellow is bright and blue is cooler. And so, and they're contrast colors. So it would make sense if he was, you know, if... Brian Singer was progressively filming the movie as more blue. I I guess I just didn't notice it uh, as much. It was more just increased shadows, like, every scene they were in his house, until the end when it was pouring down rain, but... Right. Yeah, it just got... The shadows got more and more pronounced, where people's face were in shadow, whereas before it was, like, almost like a nostalgia, like, yeah. soft lighting. I wish it had been... I, w I just wish that they had turned the dial up on it a little more. Because I think that would have made it more scary. I don't, I, like, that's the thing. This movie, for me, is just not scary. It's just... No, it's not. It's it's uh, mostly dull. Yeah, I think it, it splits the difference between a lot of, like, stylistic things that could have, if they pushed it further, could have made it work better. And I think they just tried to play something safe to allow themselves to try some more dangerous things they do. And it needed just kind of, like... He, he just really, if anything, honestly, Brian Singer needed to, like, put his career at risk to make this movie, like, the way it would need to be made. Well, he kind of did, because he made this, you know, immensely successful movie with Usual Suspects. His yeah. first movie. Yeah. Like, out the gates, comes out swinging. With, movie wins two Oscars, yeah. Yeah, he basically put Kevin Spacey on the map, and he made a lot of, like, cult movie phrases, like, um... What's the name of Kevin Spacey's character? Oh, Kaiser Soze? Kaiser Soze. Spoiler alert! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> hey, if you haven't seen Usual Suspects... Go fuck yourself! <laughs> yeah. It's been 22 years! <laughs> yeah, exactly. But K Kaiser Soze is now, like, a thing. I mean, they, they reference yeah. it on, like, TV shows. I feel like it was on Trial and Error. Like, we watched a trial... And it was on Trial and Error this past week that had a Kaiser Soze joke. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, and so he makes this immensely successful movie, and then the movie, he's like, you know what I want to follow it up with? Absolutely. <laughs> like he I read that he had the opportunity to direct the Truman show and he turned it down I to do Abbott's pupil. It's like what? Well in all fairness, Cronenberg also turned down the chance to direct Truman Show. Really? Yes. Oh my gosh, Ron, I, <laughs> I see know, a right? Cronenberg Truman show. Like Whoa. I think Truman Show is pretty <laughs> good. Like probably as good as that screenplay could be made. Oh, that movie's but, great. But, I, I like that movie. But Cronenberg's version of it oh, would be man. baffling. Like, oh, it'd be like existence, be... basically. <laughs> <laughs> How would he incorporate some kind of, like, weird monster? I don't know, maybe, like, he has a camera in his body, like, so this body horror. <laughs> like, I don't know. He has to, like, it's like a clean shaven where he, like, takes a razor blade and, like, cuts the camera out of his scalp or something. Uh. I don't know. Can, like, let's talk about, like, the conclusion of Sanders part of the story, just because there's a few things I want to talk about, but we have to, like, get through Slam the it. plot to get back to. So, Dusander, after they kill the hobo, he has a heart attack and ends up in the hospital, and his next- That's summing it up really yeah, neatly. bam. <laughs> uh, but his next door neighbor in his hospital room, like- just happens to be. Just happens to have been in the concentration, presumably Auschwitz, uh- 
oh, I don't know what concentration camp he was in, but they say in the movie that the concentration camp he was in, Dusander was a guard and he killed his wife and daughters. Yeah. <laughs> and and then you see, like, when he's, he's, after he recognizes Dusander, you see he has the tattoo on his arm, this number, and, like, it's, it's immediately clear. And so they... Some police officers show up, including Olivia Pope's dad, uh, Joe Morton. <laughs> we actually have to start calling him Joe Morton. I think we were, in, we were talking about Lone Star recently, and we just called him Olivia Pope's dad <laughs> the whole time. But Joe Morton and then some guy, I have no idea who it is, are <laughs> cops. And then there's this other man, uh, his name is Professor Weisskopf, and he is clearly like a Nazi hunter. And they, they show up and they're like, Yeah, gotcha. he works for like the Israeli something or other yeah yeah it's, i mean yeah it's yeah he uh, he works with the israeli police but the key is just he has a star of david on his lapel yeah he's a nazi hunter like that's yeah, exactly yeah. what they call themselves like but he they show up they're like we know you are a nazi it's like undeniable we gotcha and gotcha pretty much and they go to search his house they find the dead body in the basement um and he uh like they i don't know do they talk to brad renfro before he die before dusander dies or after he before. Before. So, but either way, before there's the conversation, which is my favorite shot in the movie, where the Joe Morton and then the Nazi hunter are in these chairs, but the camera is shooting from behind the chairs and pulls in through a gap between the two chairs. So the chairs are framing Brad Renfro, and as the camera pulls in on Brad Renfro through the chairs, the opening expands to show, like, his parents sitting on either side of him. Mm. It's like, it's not necessarily communicating anything it's just gorgeous it's just perfectly symmetrical it's a great shot um but they talk to him they they don't the police don't believe he knows anything so they leave and do sander kills himself by giving himself an embolism he blows into his his tube and he dies that's the information i wanted to get in what were you about to say Oh, nothing? Okay, you, were you about to say something? She, no, no, she she made uh, she made a face. I thought you were going to okay. interrupt it. I was like, do it! All right. <laughs> interrupt it. So, so I wanted to talk about that because we got to talk about Mr. French. We got to talk about Edward French. Who wants to do that? Because I just described a bunch of AKA shit. AKA David Schwimmer. <laughs> yes, you do it, Carrie. You talk about him. What? No, Courtney, you do it. <laughs> First of all, in this movie and in the book are, I don't want to say purposeless, but he's yeah. the guidance counselor who is tricked by Dusander, who pretends to be... Did we talk about this? No, we, we skipped over it completely. <laughs> yeah, that's like... <laughs> so when Todd's grades start slipping, Dusander, we did talk about this, pretends to be his grandfather, mm -hmm. and they're tricking this guidance counselor, uh, David Schwimmer. And with a great mustache. With a great mustache. <laughs> In the book, he kind of figures things out. He figures out that's not... Todd's grandfather, yeah. but in a really convoluted way. Yeah. Does he end up dying in the book? Oh, yeah. Todd like, shoots him. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's like, way more murder in the book. <laughs> that scene where he's threatening him at the end, yeah. he kills him. Okay. In the book. In the book. Wow. Well, in this, the, the key, I, I wanted to bring it up again because this is more of the homoerotic imagery oh, in this and um oh, so yeah. because after the, big way. after the scene where Dusander pretends to be the grandfather and he and todd meet with mr french mr french asks Dusander to leave the room so he can speak with todd privately 
And during this scene, he gives Todd his private home phone number and talks about, like, my wife and I just went through a really horrible divorce. And so I understand he's, like, very vague about it. But he says he was in a divorce. He gives Todd his home phone number. He says, you can call me anytime. And then he shakes his hand. And this shot is a close-up of him grabbing Todd's... Slow-mo of him grabbing Todd's hand, squeezing it. We have that same sort of light bouncing off the hands that you see when Todd's laying shirtless in his bed. Also, again, to go back to what Courtney said, a very golden shot. Very golden shot. Uh, But it's like... This, it couldn't be more emphasized on him. It's not like a quick handshake, like, like, we're doing business. It's like a very weirdly tender moment. And it's not being clearly stated as him. Yeah, I think the idea is more like, he's the hip guidance counselor. You can trust me. You can open Mm -hmm. up to me. It's, that's what he's trying to give off. But the way it's shot and the way it resolves itself at the end is very... Yeah. <laughs> and so at the end of the movie, uh, in a, a non-roundabout way, Mr. French finds out that the grandfather was actually a Nazi by seeing a picture of him in the newspaper that said, uh, Nazi killer continued to murder, or something like that. <laughs> and he's like, can you explain this, Todd? And he shows him. Well, and also, before I get into this, I want to write down that Mr. French literally says during his first scene to Todd, you try to pull one over on me, and the next time I show up on your doorstep, and then literally shows up <laughs> on his doorstep. <laughs> but he, hey, should... he kept his promise. Yeah, he is true to his word. He is allowed to be honest in this movie. Yeah. But, so he confronts Todd, and Todd's basically like, well, I don't, I, I don't know what you're talking about, and, and Mr. French is like, well, I'm going to talk to your parents. And Todd spins that that first meeting with him where he gave his phone number and everything. And, and like, shook his hand. And shook his hand. And he's like, do, uh, it's like, am I the first one that worked on? Do you always give people your phone number? Is this did, why your wife divorced you? Did you? Is this why you showed up at my house when my parents aren't here? Yeah. And just like very clearly, like this, and this we should emphasize too, is the end of the movie. Last is, three minutes. This is the note the movie goes out on is him basically trying to, he's, he's doing the leverage thing. So it's, totally consistent but again he's specifically doing it by saying like i'm gonna tell everyone you're a pedophile i'm gonna tell everyone you're a pedophile if you dare try to drag me down i'm gonna drag you down with me that is my favorite yeah. scene of brad renfro's acting oh he yeah. brings it so hard it's oh, so when he dribbles that basketball oh, man. Like, really <laughs> it's he's oh really really good in that yeah. scene that was definitely my favorite scene of his as far as his not your I fucking just, school anymore yeah. and i i just remembered that brad renfro's character kills that pigeon with the basketball yeah oh. yeah so that there's was also cool. a theme of like animal killing okay. yes <laughs> let's talk about the basketball thing really quick um, during the during oh, yeah. the family dinner scene, during the family dinner scene where they where he brings Ian McKellen to meet his family, uh, uh, Todd's dad says, "Oh yeah, baseball is Todd's game," and like pats him on the back, and then cut to the movie showing almost nothing but. Todd playing basketball. I think there's one other scene where he plays baseball. There's one and, scene. And one scene where he watches a baseball game, but every scene where, almost every other scene where we see him playing sports is him playing basketball, him practicing basketball alone. <laughs> like, I just, have no idea why. He was just a baseball player in the book. Yeah. I have no idea why all the basketball. Well, and the last shot is him playing basketball. Him nailing a free throw <laughs> over a, like, superpose <laughs> over a corpse's face. Ian McCullen's dead, not 
Nazi blue-eyed face with a basketball hoop superimposed <laughs> over it. So weird. Especially if basketball is not in the book at all. It doesn't solve anything narratively. It's Maybe not like a shortcut. Maybe basketball is more cinematic than baseball. But that is not true either because there's way more movies about baseball yeah. than hey. basketball. Can you think of, I mean, is there a better, is there a better basketball movie than Bull Durham as a baseball movie? Like, is there an equivalent, or is it just Space Jam? Space Jam. (laughs) (laughs) No, there's, um, isn't it For the Love of the Game? That's, I I haven't seen it, that's Sam Raimi's baseball movie. Uh, there's a ton of baseball movies, you're talking about basketball No, that's what I'm saying, is there's good baseball movies, are there good basketball movies? (laughs) Hoop Dreams, the air up there. Okay. There, there, there. <laughs> I didn't want to let that go by. <laughs> Basketball. Yeah. Oh my god. Well, that's both. You, that's found, both. you found the ah. winner, boy. And that movie has real big fish in it, so. Oh well, so it's a winner. real winner. All right. Um, Jinx. Thanks, Jinx. <laughs> Do you guys want to learn some weird Brad Renfro trivia? Sure. Yes. Okay. So two days <laughs> before he OD'd, which by the way, he OD'd when he was twenty-five. Man, so, so young. Yeah, he was so young. He so he didn't even make it to Anton Yelkin age. Yeah, he didn't even get to 27. Man. Um, so two days before his death, he got a huge tattoo on his back that said, Fuck all y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Die young and leave a pretty corpse, I guess. Yeah. Um, also, after his death, his family announced that he had a child. With a Japanese woman, and that his child and his, the woman were living in Japan. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Uh, and then That's also, sad. really sad. I mean, sad for his child. It's really sad. It's sad for everybody, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just like, Brad Renfro had so much interesting trivia. I was like, how am I going to naturally bring this up? Yeah. I That's can't. fine. Okay. Also, he was roommates. You guys know the band Foster the People? Yeah. All the other kids with the fucked up kicks. Uh, he was roommates with Mark Foster of Foster the People. Oh, weird. And Mark Foster wrote a song about him. It's called Downtown. I actually listened to it. It's really good. I liked it a lot. But I really like Foster the People, so whatever. (laughs) Um, and then last piece of trivia, of course, always bringing it back to James Franco. Yep. (laughs) We had an episode recently where we, like, ragged on James Franco pretty hard, but okay. Another reason to rag on James Franco. <laughs> James Franco has a shoulder tattoo for Brad Renfro that just says Brad. I mean, that's sweet. I can't really... Like no. I said, I don't hate James Franco. I just think he's a terrible writer and director. That was all. That was all I was saying. Still a good person. <laughs> yeah, still a good person. I think he's a fine actor sometimes, <laughs> but he is he should not be allowed to direct movies of Cormac McCarthy novels. <laughs> he is a very handsome guy, and he is in 112263, so All right. circle again. I do want to point out, because I have just a few more quick things left in my notes, but I do want to point out two more little moments of homoerotic dialogue. <laughs> the first one is the more obvious one where the Nazi hunter says to Joe Morton, I used to chase girls, now I chase old men. <laughs> <laughs> but that line specifically stuck out to me as homoerotic because of an earlier scene where Todd is with Becky and they're making out in a car and he's like, I'm sorry, this has never happened to me before when he's like, he can't get into it. And she says, maybe you just don't like girls. And then Todd like looks away and then cuts on that note. And I was like, 
like, it was like, again, it's like very, like, uh, uh, doesn't need to be in there, but by ending the scene on that note, it just continues this thread. That's also the scene where, where uh, Todd asks Becky, do you ever think about why people do what they do? And then she says, no. Yeah. <laughs> so what, what does yeah, Becky think everybody, about? Basically everybody besides Dusander, Todd, Mr. French, and the homeless guy don't give a shit about any of the plot of the movie. Like, I'll say, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot of great female characters in no. this movie. <laughs> but it's like, there's not even really that many characters. Like, even yeah. his parents aren't developed beyond the They're fact that they are his out, parents. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I just, uh, I, I wanted to mention one last little thing. Um, there's a scene, and maybe it's intentional, maybe it's not, but there's a moment where Todd goes with Becky to see a movie and they're watching the movie and laughing and all of a sudden Todd hears like Mr. Dusander laughing and he looks at a few rows ahead of him in the movie theater Dusander's laughing and that's like so close to something from Cape Fear. Like, do you remember that scene yeah, in Cape Fear? where Robert De Niro is just, like, laughing Laughing and smoking a cigar while, like, they go... It was like... I was like, is that intentional? Is that, like, a very intentional reference? It's not, like, stupid. It's, like, a... a it's a fair reference to make. Yeah, but just, like, Cape Fear is scarier than yes. this movie is. Because <laughs> Cape Fear is way crazier. Yeah. Robert De Niro is a <laughs> There's a scene where Robert De Niro dresses up and dragged to strangle someone with piano wire. <laughs> he also... Kidnaps them on that boat. Yeah. Oh my god. god okay. Well, yeah, yeah Kid Fear is, is hilarious. Yeah. But that's all I have. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you're out. <laughs> yeah, I'm out. Yeah, do you guys have any other things you wanted to bring up? Just odds and ends stuff? Or oh gosh. Stuff? I did kind of like that in the end when Dusander was dying, he was twitching a lot in a way like he described yeah. the uh, oh. concentration camp victims in the shower when they had a malfunction with the gas. Yeah, that's um, So I thought that was kind of a nice little callback to that. Um, his death in the book is slightly different, but at the very end, the idea, I think in both cases, is that he's haunted by his past and his past. He wants, in the book they play it up where he wants just a quick death, he just wants to kind of go to sleep and die, and in both cases, he his past comes back in a really big way in his final moments. Hmm. I like is, that. Is it, to any degree, in the movie, it kind of feels like, to a certain extent, he ex escapes blame. And like, like, it, it, like the, especially, like, after you see him die, the it, it, it doesn't end, like, the last shot of the movie is his dead body, but the scene where he dies, it ends with the Nazi hunter. Like, it's the Nazi hunter's expression seeing that this man is dead. And does the book have any sort of reference yeah, to, like, how... What note does the book end on? Uh, <laughs> so, in the book, when Todd is confronted... So, as I said, Todd's a psychopath. He's been killing people. dusander has been killing people. That's a big part of the third act. He has all these fantasies throughout the book of taking... He, his dad buys him a rifle, and he has all these fantasies. And he even, like, has the rifle not loaded, and he's sitting up on this hill and taking aim at people in their cars who are Whoa. on the road. Whoa. And, like, firing it without anything in the, ch in the chamber. At the end, when... See, his things do fall apart for Todd, because the cops... No, they, they start putting it together that he has been killing these hobos uh. and that he helped Dusander cover up the yeah. hobos in the basement. And so Todd 
realizes he's been found out. Todd also has, like, suicidal thoughts in the book and Ooh. thinks about killing himself with the rifle, mm. killing his parents with the rifle. The rifle comes up a lot. Sounds like a narcissist. <laughs> he's a lot of things. So when he's confronted by his guidance counselor at the end, he just murders him. Um, it oh. doesn't go, he doesn't try and blackmail him. He just gets his rifle. Straight up murders him. And murders him in broad daylight. But since he knows he, it's over... They t- the last note is that the cops catch him on that, like, grassy knoll or whatever on the highway after five hours or something yeah. like that. Like, he's been up there probably shooting people in the cars that are going by, but it, that's not really clear. But the cops do get him. Yeah. Another I, Stephen King theme, yeah. grassy knoll. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> so well, that's the note the book ends on. Well, yeah. Well, okay. and also, there is a, there's a movie called Targets that has, like, a somewhat similar trajectory to, like, what you're describing with the rifle. And so I imagine even, like, that movie it exists, and if he, they were to do it in this movie, if they were to take that aspect of the book, they would be more or less, like, flat-out remaking Targets in a lot of ways. So that, that makes sense, at least in terms of, like, trying to keep the movie original and unique, like... That was is something they could easily strip out, but yeah, that's that's pretty different. Yeah, <laughs> very different ends. ending. It's a lot, much less bleak. Like, surprisingly, like the novel uh, is like seems to get into darker material, but ends in a more like I don't want to say satisfying way because I haven't read it, but like just in a way that doesn't make you like weep for humanity and the possibilities within. I don't hate the ending yeah. of the movie necessarily yeah. either. I like the idea that he's going to play this blackmail game again. Oh, and I was thinking. Why does the guidance counselor care? Todd's graduated. Right. He's not in school anymore. Why does he even care that Todd's grandfather wasn't his grandfather? Or that he knew... Everyone knows that Todd knew this Nazi guy. Well, so it's... That's not a secret. So he has nothing on him. But in the book... It goes way too much into the guidance counselor. It's not important. But he starts doing digging into Todd's old records and realizes that some of his report cards had been... um, Modified? Yeah. They had been changed by Todd. When he first... His grades first started slipping, he was just like changing the grades and doctoring his report cards. So it was the kind of thing... It was a good enough job that it passed, but once the guidance counselor realizes kind of that he's been played... He goes back and looks at those report cards and like, oh no, these are forged. Yeah. Like these were changed. Um, so I guess it could, it would definitely screw up Todd's like future academic career of going to college and everything else, and the fact that he was valedictorian. Yeah. So, hmm. I think that's why he confronts him in the book. Yeah, and in the movie, it, it does. You're right. In the movie, really it's not make, clear. It doesn't really make sense because he al- also Todd did the thing that the guidance counselor asked him to do, which is raise his grades. Yeah. So yeah, why does he show up? Uh, yeah, no. I idea. think it was just like they said that quote where he says like, "If you try to pull the wool over my eyes again, I'll be on your doorstep." I mean, it's just like they're like, "Okay, there, covered." He so when not- he shows up at the end, we we wrote a line that literally ad- addressed it specifically. So He's a promise keeper. Yeah. And one more thing about the pedophile aspect. <laughs> I really want to get off of that subject, yeah. but it's hard not to, um, or it's hard to. He mentions that uh, Brad Renfro, when he's threatening the guidance counselor, says, you know, if this comes out that I, this story that he's concocted where he's going to accuse him of being a pedophile, he says, like, what, you know, what's everyone going to think? What's this going to do to your career? What will your son think? Mm -hmm. In the book, he has a daughter. So I think it's interesting that they flipped it to son sort of to play into that whole uh, pedophile accusation. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a small detail, but it fits in with our... Uh, underlying themes that we've been discussing. Okay, good. Well, and I only have one more thing I wanted to mention, going back to the scandal with Brian Singer. 
or the alleged scandal. Yeah, like I said, Brian Singer. Uh, there, there's a movie, there's a documentary about it. Oh, there um, is. And actually, the the woman who made the movie, she made Deliver Us from Evil. Oh, Amy Burke. Yeah. What's Amy, the name of the movie? The movie is An Open Secret. Oh, okay. I did kind of hear about this. Yeah. <laughs> and I can only imagine that the documentary is pretty good because Deliver Us from Evil is really good. It's just... Really, really sad. Also, it makes me feel like, yeah, it is a super sad movie. It is not a movie you watched twice. Yeah, genuinely one of those movies. I bought it to watch it, and it's like, why Why did you do that? Why would I buy this? But it's a great (laughs) movie. But the fact that Amy Berg made a documentary about this makes me feel like way less of an asshole for bringing it up in the podcast, because it's not like I'm just bringing up some vague internet rumor and just like needlessly being a shithead. I'm like talking about something that is actually being talked about by serious people mm-hmm. so it's just being okay. covered yeah. well not, i don't want to say co- i don't want to say there's a cover-up yeah it's but a- there is an active effort to not have it in the public discourse yeah and now it's still not in the public discourse yeah because listen to our podcast you will recommend it to others <laughs> uh secret cinema spread the word about brian singer <laughs> The accusations. Yes, sorry. All right. Uh, do you have anything else you wanted to bring up? All right. Well, then now it's time to tiptoe in teachable moments. Uh, uh, if you guys need a moment, I have one ready. Rock on. All right. My teachable moment this week, especially because we had someone here who actually read the novel, <laughs> is that uh, if you're going to make a movie based on a novel, you're always going to lose something translation like novels the the benefit of a book over a movie is that you can always there's you can basically convey anything with the written word visual a visual medium there are some things you can convey better but there's a lot of things you can't convey at all and like we talked about psychological states are much tougher to depict rather than to just describe and apt pupil clearly had to become a different Thing in a lot of ways like it kept some core elements but a lot of stuff had to be cut out and changed and so I guess my lesson for apt pupil is just watch it as an example of the way in which a movie has to change to meet the medium or a story has to change to meet the medium like you if you someday if you are listening and you want to make a book that you love or a story that you love into a movie, just understand that you will probably have to streamline it. You will have to cut things out that might seem good, or you might have to rewrite entire sections to condense things. And if you don't like how that sounds, then you just might have to come up with an original idea because that's always (laughs) going to happen. There's never, I don't think there's ever been a novel in history that was adapted verbatim successfully (laughs) like i just don't think it could happen and yeah i mean i don't necessarily think that is why i had a problem with apt pupil but it is something you can easily see if you're willing to watch the movie and then compare it to the short story Mm -hmm. so i guess that would be my teachable lesson moment thing that's a good one yep yeah corny you want you got one i think my teachable moment is just that the book is almost always better and in this case, the book wasn't that strong to begin with, so the fact that the movie is pretty forgettable is not that shocking. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just uh, tack on my teachable moment is, just because this Stephen King 
movie is not good does not mean that there aren't good Stephen King movies, because there certainly are. Yes. Uh, there's like even... maximum overdrive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, there's even good, bad Stephen like King movies. Like Silver Bullet. Yes. That was no, what I was yeah, going to mention. That was an unironic shout-out. Silver Bullet is hilarious. <laughs> I was... I didn't realize... And Sleepwalkers. I didn't realize... Oh, Sleepwalkers. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that movie. I didn't realize this, but when I was you know, doing research on Stephen King, his first book is Carrie. Carrie. Yeah. That is an amazing book. And then the movie is just fantastic as well in that's, its own right. But, and that's one of those things you gotta really think about is that if it wasn't for De Palma and Kubrick, would Stephen King even be as famous as he is now? Like, I, I mean, he is very they're, prolific. They're great books. I do love a lot of his books. And I, when I was in high school, I read Nightmares and Dreamscapes. And that was probably like one of my favorite books in, in high school. I love, I love all those short stories. But if... <laughs> Every one of them had been adapted by, like, I don't know, I'm just trying to think Brian of... Brian Singer? Not Brian Singer, I don't... I, I, I was trying to find someone shitty. Like, like, Michael Bay. Like, if Michael Bay had made Carrie or something, like... He could probably do a good Maximum Overdrive, though. Yes, absolutely. Oh. But so, Michael Bay, or if you're listening, we want a Maximum Overdrive remake. Or please. a Christine remake, where Christine blows up all the time, like... Uh, but yeah. Or Transforms. We don't need a Christine remake. See? But, and also, with Carrie and The Shining, we should point out, too... Both of those movies are adapted totally different from the way the novel is. Yeah, so, Stephen King has come out and said he doesn't like the Shining. He hates movie. the Shining. Yeah. That's why he redid it in that delightful <laughs> TV miniseries. <laughs> terrible one with Stephen Weber. All right, but that's yeah. I think that's pretty much it. Uh, this has been the secret. Wait, cinema. hold on. No. I want to say I want to <laughs> say thank you to Courtney. Oh yeah. Because well, we can still say thank you after saying it's the secret cinema, but now well, we're going to say it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> well, because she didn't put the effort in of reading yeah, the book. Thank you, Courtney. <laughs> thank you, Courtney. That's awesome. I do what I can. I think that's the most research any guest has ever done. So thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate. And we look forward to your episode that will be premiering in a few weeks on an upcoming movie <laughs> called Fear. We'll see how that episode goes. <laughs> it's gonna be great. It'll yeah, it'll be very good. But, but okay, now. Is the, this has been the Secret Cinema? I'm Paolo. I'm Carrie, and I'm Courtney. Thanks for joining us, Courtney. Thanks, Courtney. And thank you for listening, listener. The Secret Cinema is produced and edited by Paolo Carone. All theme songs and original music are written and performed by Ricardo Ortiz. Any additional music or samples are taken from the film featured on this week's episode. All logos and artwork are created by Carrie Chafee. You can follow Carrie on Instagram at CarrieSawThis and see more of her artwork at www.CarrieChafee.com. You can watch Paolo's short films at www.Vimeo.com slash or read more of his ramblings about film at www.Letterbox.com slash Follow The Secret Cinema on Instagram at Secret Cinema Podcast, on Twitter at Covert Celluloid, or like us on Facebook. The Secret Cinema is a commentary and criticism podcast, and its use of film dialogue and film music for illustrative purposes falls under the fair use provisions of U.S. copyright law. The Secret Cinema is a product of Larry Lathan Productions. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.